0: Welcome back to the Unanimous Decision Podcast. I am your host, d Palm. Follow me on Twitter at d palm 66 Follow the show on Twitter at UDPod. Follow the entire MTR network at, you guess it, the MTR network. You found us, don't you dare lose us. Subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Spotify. Subscribe everywhere. Get your podcasts for absolutely free. 99 What's Up Playoffs. Now, if you're like me, you're an old person. If you're an old person, you've... Had to face some very real, very sobering realities this playoff uh, time of year. There are years where I've joked and said, "Oh, how hard it is for me to stay awake, and how how much I drag the next day." And those have always been true jokes. However, this is the first year I am—I'll be 37 this summer. This is the first year in my 37 years where I've woken up to charmed, where I've been. Roused from sleep at about three or four in the morning by someone casting a spell in a show I would never watch, given an option. First and foremost, Charmed. you're welcome for the ratings. Secondly, this playoff schedule is getting to me. You're going to hear this right before, I believe, two big game fours tonight before Boston takes on Milwaukee to try to knock that bad boy up. And the same thing, Memphis and Golden State. Now, we're not going to talk about those games until the end of this podcast because you may listen to this after it, and then the whole podcast would be useless to you, and I would hate to do that. So we're going to talk about those last. We're going to talk about first, before anything else, is Phil Mickelson. I know what you're thinking. That's crazy, Deep Palm. This is not a golf podcast. You're correct. It is a scammer celebration podcast. And a couple weeks ago, I told you that Phil Mickelson and his push for the Saudi League had overstepped some bounds, offended some norms, and had been effectively shadow banned from the PGA Tour. Similarly, the PGA Tour said that if you do play in these Saudi events, if you request time away from the PGA Tour, you risk the, you run the risk excuse me, of being permanently banned from the PGA Tour, a PGA Tour that's made all these people a lot of money. Of course, the Saudi money looks like it's more money. And where there's money, there will be greed. Phil Mickelson has decided to pursue this greed in a very public fashion. But the question is why? We touched on this last time we talked about Phil. We don't do it too often. Phil Mickelson, if you've noticed his name in the news when it's not about golf, it's generally about some sort of large scale financial investigation where everyone goes to jail except for Phil. And with all the sponsors jumping ship and everyone getting mad at Phil about the Saudi Arabia thing, more information is coming out from Alan Shipnuck about Phil Mickelson's not just stance towards the Saudis, but his actual financial situation. In an excerpt from the forthcoming biography, Phil, the rip-roaring and authorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar, which, holy shit, what a title, Alan Shipman got us the original anecdote that led to the uproar around the Saudi event. The book now says the theory for the real motivation for those Saudi back off league is to offset some gambling losses. I'm reading from the excerpt now. According to a source with direct access to the documents, Mickelson had gambling losses totaling more than $40 million in a four-year period that was scrutinized, 2010 to 2014. In those prime earning years, his income was estimated to be just north of $40 million a year. That's an obscene amount of money, but once he paid his taxes, he was left with what? Low 20s? Then he had to cover his plane, mansions, his agent, caddy, pilots, chef, personal trainer, swing coaches, and sundry others. Throwing all the expenses of a big life, like an actual T-Rex birthday skull for a birthday present... It'd be weird if it was a real T-Rex, and that leaves what 10 million per the government audit. That's roughly how much Mickelson averaged in annual gambling losses over those four years, and we still don't know what we don't know. In other words, it's quite possible that he was barely breaking even, or maybe even in the red. And Mickelson's income dropped considerably, considerably, excuse me, from his winless years of 2014 to 2017. Now, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I don't care enough to know. I do know that when things look logical and you line them up and they seem to make sense, it tends to break that way. So we'll see what he does next. Phil Mickelson, of course, did not compete in the Masters last month and may may or may not be on course to defend his 2021 PGA Championship title in two weeks uh, in Tulsa. He won five times in 2010 and 2014 and has yet to address this specific allegation with the media. It's possible that he'd want to avoid PGA Tour events for the foreseeable future. Rather than, it's not only the answers about Saudi Arabia, but the answer about this. It's, um, again, I don't know what's real, I don't know what's not. I do know that the same source who was helping write this unauthorized biography seemed to have hit the nail on the head with the Saudi Arabia nonsense. And if this is true, if the answer is very simple as it always has been, it's just fucking greed. And in Phil Middleton's case, a stunningly bad ability to gamble. And I don't care what people gamble. Do what you want. It's your money. Put yourself in the poorhouse. But if Phil Mickelson's, if these numbers reported are accurate, even close to accurate, that's a debilitating level of gambling addiction that should probably be taken care of by a professional and not all of us in the media. But it is what it is. Um, Before getting into bigger news of the day, I want to just tip my cap. We made some jokes a couple weeks ago about Kyrie Irving getting paid to work half a season. Good job by him. Bobby Cox is the most dejected manager in baseball history. The stat came across me today, and I wanted to share it with you guys because it's not just that he got kicked out more than everyone else. I don't know. It's the sheer volume of numbers. Now, I make fun of baseball for having too many games. Apparently, Bobby Cox agreed because in his career, he was kicked out of 162 games. That's right. Bobby Cox kicked out of an entire season of baseball. And as this podcast celebrates faking it till you make it and scamming your way to the top, My God, Bobby Cox got a free season of money. Good job by you, Bobby. Good job. Good effort. Now, the NFL draft is now behind us. It is, again, we did the preview with uh, Jason Smith. We're going to talk about the Georgia prospects really quickly. But I do want to talk about the draft as a whole. The draft is insane that you would grab these kids, say, hey, we're going to move you to wherever and hope that this system works for you. What's been interesting this year's draft was it felt like some of these ownership groups and, and 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 front offices got out of their own way as far as making mistakes, particularly in the quarterback situation where no one seemed that hungry, that reflective of Jimmy G and Baker Mayfield both being on the open market, presumably to be traded for in training camp, if not week one through four? Sure. But I think also part of it is that, one, there's more voices out there holding people accountable. Two, there's more data than ever. And three, they figured out they don't need to spend money on quarterbacks. Or draft picks. They can mold someone to their system, or at least that's what they think. Plus, it doesn't help that this was a notoriously weak draft class that, of course, the Falcons ended up they're coming to, to further my opinion that they're the worst franchise in sports and should not be cheered for by anyone. Vested only by the Saints, who are accessible. Now, let's talk about the success stories of the draft. We're talking about some big schools doing big numbers. And I'll tell you what, there was a record broken this year. A couple, actually. No defense had ever had five draft uh, players drafted in the first round of a, play, of a, of a, of a draft, seven-round draft. Happened now. Georgia had five defensive players go in the first round. Fantastic. But it gets even better because Georgia broke their own record from last year saying not only do they have the most in the first round, but the most overall, 15 overall draft picks taken in the seven-round draft, the most for the modern seven-round draft. And for those of you who say, home, you don't care about this. You don't care where they're going. You just glad they make money. You're correct, but however, I'm also, before anything else, a Georgia fan. And what is this good for, kids, all together now? Recruiting. If I'm a if I'm a talented player, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, and I see 15 draft picks and a projected another three first rounders next year, and they way too early draft predictions, I'm saying to myself, let me go to Athens to learn this here defense, so that I too can make a whole bunch of money. Now we're not going to just. Hand wave and say 15 dogs were taken. We're going to go through each one really quickly. Bear with me if you would. We'll start with round six. The last uh bulldog taken by the Atlanta Falcons. John Fitzpatrick tight end. Round six, pick 213. Before that, pick 212. Uh Darren Kendrick went to the Rams, cornerback, out of Georgia. Before that, round six, Jamari Saylor also going to LA, but this time for the Chargers. Round six, pick 195. Before that, 190. Justin Schaefer, offensive lineman, to the Falcons. And you know what? We talked about this when we had uh, Jason on, and I want to just commend the Falcons for reading the room and doing the easy thing. When you're at the back half of these picks and making these kind of decisions, it's quite simple to just say, let's grab the local guy. We know we'll at least get a PR bump from them. Bravo, Falcons. Maybe not as bad as I thought. Round four, we jump all the way up to where Jake Camarda the first punter off the board, maybe not the first, but he what did go ahead of the punt god, which I think made certain segments of uh, NCAA Twitter very angry, but he would just have a bag. We will hold that not against him. Zamir White, Zeus going to Las Vegas Raiders with the fourth round pick in 122. We've got uh Channing Tyndall headed to the Dolphins. We've got built something pretty impressive down there in Miami. We'll see how it takes off. He was a third round pick, 102 overall. Also in the third round, Nicobe Dean, Philadelphia Eagles, and the Eagles might have done something very important here because what they've done is They've grabbed a player who apparently there was some injury concerns. He's going to need surgery either this offseason or coming in the next offseason. But there's your value pick because I said on this podcast, I'll say it till I'm proven wrong that I think this is the best defensive player in the draft. We're going to see he's never been wrong once on a football field. I don't think he's going to start now. Good job by the Eagles uh, snapping up there. Second round pick, James Cook, number 63 to the New York Giants. For those of you who say, hey, don't they have a running back? (laughs) Welcome to the show they do now. Anyway, uh, let's go back now. Still in round two, number 52, pick number 52, excuse me, George Pickens to the Steelers. I, as long as they get him a quarterback, I'm cool with it. Like he's going to be, he's going to bring that toughness, that edge. He's going to bring physicality on the edge. He's going to bring a great level of explosiveness and amazing catchability. I think he's going to be fully served by having professional throw him footballs. Now, now we talk about the first round and the first round is, the standout for the Bulldogs, obviously. Five first-round draft picks all in the defense, and we'll talk about kind of what we're expecting to come out of Georgia in the next year. But first we're going to talk about number 32 pick, first-round draft pick, um, Minnesota Vikings, Lewisine. I think it's a great fit. I think it's going to be a player who's going to help augment that defense greatly. Uh, the Packers really believed in that logo match, picking up Devontae Wyatt and Quay Walker, Quay Walker, 22nd overall pick, and Devontae White, the 28th overall pick. This is one of those teams that saw the value in the professionalism and the explosiveness of that defense and said, we want that on our side. The Eagles joined them by bringing in not just Jacoby Dean, but also Jordan Davis getting drafted number 13th overall, headed to the Eagles, a town I used to live in. I hope they enjoy the uh, snow because they're going to get a lot of it. And the number one overall pick, Jason Smith said it on these airwaves. Jason Smith was right. Jason Smith was right. I can't believe I'm saying it. Trevon Walker to the Jacksonville Jaguars, I don't know. There, It's a lot of drafts on measurables, a lot of drafts on what we can get out of those measurables, and we'll see how it pans out. We'll see how it plays out for everyone involved. Again, the primary aspect of all of this is congrats to the young men for getting paid. Get money, keep money, take money away from other people. Now, speaking of money, the NCAA is begun to, uh, speaking they're going to crack down on booster involvement in the NIL. What the problem is that They abdicated any responsibility up to this point. For those of you who are just catching up, the NCAA has been faced with this growing valuation of players' image and likeness rights for the last 15, 20 years, since I was in college. That's horrifying. Um, And when the ILO rules came out, they took their hands off the wheel and said, hey, look, you guys figure it out. What you're not going to do is introduce money into a system, legitimate money now, clean money now, and then tell that system to reject said money. It's not going to work. There will be lawyers. There will be winnings of lawyers. Lawyers will be losing cases because this is a bad idea. And what's super interesting to me is that now we're getting more and more calls for the things you've heard me talk about for years, the questions being asked. But what does NCAA actually do besides keep money from players? I do believe that in the next 10 years, we're going to see the University of Georgia Football Incorporated brought to you by the University of Georgia. you will have looser affiliations of these schools with these teams the way it should be. You shouldn't be depending on scholastic excellence based on how many tickets your football team sells. It's not how higher education should work. It's not how it works anywhere in the world. If you've got international friends, explain to them college football and watch them look at you. Like, turn on a Zoom. Don't do it over the phone. You need to see their faces when you explain the financial structure of college football. Because they will say to you, wait, none of the players get paid by the schools, and you won't have an answer. Because it's infathomable unless you were raised in it and indoctrinated by it every Saturday. As I was. As I was. Now, let's stay in Athens and talk about some things that we saw at the spring game. Of course, again, guys, I don't watch spring football. I'd advise you not to do it. But I'm a sick, sad person whose team won a title this year. We just crossed, as i recording this, we crossed the threshold of the last day we watched this team play and the next day we will watch this team play. We're over the halfway mark. Congratulations, dog fans. You did it. Any dog players, they come to you, the NCAA says, hey, come talk to us about the NIL deal you may have. Come educate us on the boosters that gave you money. It is the advice of this podcast, not a lawyer to tell the NCAA to go fuck itself. They don't have subpoena power. And if all of you tell them to go fuck themselves, they can't disqualify all of you. There will be lawyers. A lot of your agents are lawyers. Let them do that job and earn their money. Now, let's talk about the Georgia Spring breakdown of the of what we saw in the Spring Game. Again, I've actually gone back and watched it once. Um, don't tell nada. But <laughs> what's interesting to me is not just watching Eric Gilbert line up at tight end, but also watching how Stetson Bennett had improved having a full offseason as a starter. You remember going into last season, he was a third-string guy, getting third-string reps in spring, getting third-string reps and competing going into camp. Now, establishing as the starter, whether that's for good or ill, it's at least going to give an opportunity for him not to have to learn on the job and to grow into week one. No one's going to be upset that Georgia lost eight players in the defense, five in the first round. I'm going to keep saying that shit. But... With all that exiting, you look at what's next, and it's not a bear cover because Georgia and Kirby and company have been so good at recruiting, have been so good at establishing an accountability situation where the next guy up is the next guy up, and the next guy up is going to be a star too. So I couldn't be more excited for Georgia's prospects, very excited to beat the dog shit out of Oregon come week one, throw this back in my face the second they lose. I welcome it. We're going to go to the NFL now before we go to the NBA. And we're going to talk about one big story that actually broke over the weekend. Dan Ventrell. You don't know who that is. It's okay. He was the team president of the Las Vegas Raiders. I say it slowly because I still want to say Oakland. He was fired after less than a year in charge. Neither Davis nor the team want to go into detail why they fired him. However, Ventrell on Friday afternoon released a statement to the media. He says that he was he saw Davis, who owns the, also owns the Las Vegas Aces, create a difficult workplace within the Raiders organization. He says that after being with the team since 2003, he was let go after confronting Davis and then notifying the NFL about Davis creating a hostile work environment and engaging in other potential misconduct. The question now is going to be, will the NFL do anything? The answer is probably no. They're going to cut a check to Mr. Vintro and let him go on his merry way. But what's interesting is that this is not a new story. This is not a new or unique story even. This is a story that we have heard echoed across different front offices. And you don't hear calls or cries for education or for recrimination or for punishment from these front offices because they don't want people looking at them. It's the same way when they took Donald Sterling's team away from him. Mark Cuban stood up and said, hey, man, that's scary. And there's going to be people who say, yeah, that is scary. It's It's a slippery slope. And I say, fuck that slope. I like a scared billionaire. So we'll see what happens with this situation in Las Vegas. I'm going to close with a quote from Ventrella. I've committed almost 18 years of my life to the success of the Raiders as general counsel and president. I take that responsibility very seriously, which is why multiple written complaints for employees that create, that Mark created a hostile environment and engaged in other potential misconduct gave me great concern. When Mark was confronted with these issues, he was dismissive and did not demonstrate the warranted level of concern. Given this, I informed the NFL of these issues and of Mark's unacceptable response. Soon thereafter, I was fired in retaliation for raising these concerns retaliation is a big one there because that's one thing that's super illegal to do for whistleblowers we'll see if he has whistleblower protection based on the communications with the NFL the whole thing's crazy and you get to remember this is still on the heels of John Gruden resigning in the middle of the season last year because his interview of his emails leaking during the Washington commander's investigation if you're saying wow that's like a lot of crazy things to be happening in front offices Jerry Jones hit a guy Um, Oh, uh, uh, buddy in Cleveland, or excuse me, in Indianapolis still owns that team. It's crazy, yes. But is it the craziest thing that we've seen? Probably not. Shout out to the WNBA. Tipped off last weekend. Um, if you are an Atlanta native or you're going to be going to Atlanta Dream Games at Six 66, uh, me and the homies are trying to get more active and go out and do that kind of thing. I do want to be a bigger supporter of WNBA. I've been doing my first home game this year. I'm very excited about that. Looks like they're playing on the 13th here. Against the Aces, who we just talked about as well, co-owned by Mark Davis. We'll see if I show up there. Um, but, yes, it's exciting. The more and more time and effort and money behind this, it has paid off for not just the individual teams but also for the league. The revenue has gone up. Every time they've invested in the return has been fantastic. So I ask you now, go out. If you live in a city that has these teams, go out and see them. We're watching first-round drafts. We're watching women who are standouts in the NCAA, lose spots on rosters. There's, time has come for expansion, and for everyone who says, wait for the CBA, how many young women's dreams or futures are you willing to sacrifice for the CBA? Brittany Griner sitting incarcerated in Russia because there's not a viable pathway to financial freedom playing basketball as a woman in this country. We've watched what happens. The return on investment is fantastic. The more opportunity this league has gotten, the bigger it's grown. At a certain point, the people with their hands on the the levers of power and money had to decide, hey, not only is it a good idea for us to burnish this league and have it be out there, it's a better financial idea for us to say, this league can make us money in a way that we've never made money before. And, yes, I'm appealing to greed because I guess that's all that's left here in this here world. That's all we've got going is who can be the greediest, who can have the most. Um, speaking of greedy, not really speaking of greedy, Nikola Jokic, back-to-back NBA MVP. Congratulations to yoke um, the Joker. I think if people are saying you didn't pass the eyeball test, which tells me you didn't watch him play basketball. This guy's out here um, averaging near or triple-double out of the post with amazing passing um, and throwing to no one. He didn't have his best players on the side with him. He did it all without Jamal Murray, did it all without Michael Porter Jr., excuse me, and he still made the playoffs as a sixth seed before losing uh, to the Warriors in five. The numbers this year as a center better than last year: 27.1 points per game, 13.8 rebounds per game, 7.9 assists. Eighth in the league, first player in NBA history with 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, and 500 assists. And you're going to hear a lot of talk about this. They shouldn't, get it. guys. It's a regular season award. Is it not the most interesting look for the league to give it away while he's sitting at home two years in a row? Yeah. I would probably do away with the big pomp and circumstance award show that they're trying to build around this thing because they want ratings and more greed. But no matter how they deserve, decide to, to hand out the hardware, the deserved question isn't there. Uh, Joel Embiid presumably finished second. And that's going to make sense. Joel Embiid is doing the thing right now that you're like, oh, that's why he was up there in the rankings. Um, Nikola Jokic op- eligible for a Supermax extension, guaranteeing over $254 million over five years, starting in 2023. Good for him. Um, we know that the Nuggets don't have anything without him, so they're going to pay him. He averaged 31 and 13.2 in the first round series. And good for him. Get two in a row. If you're hating, go ahead and hate from outside the club, because that's where Jokic is as well. That was me. Let's wrap up our talk for the day. It's going to be a short podcast. We'll talk about the Elite Eight, the last eight teams playing here in the NBA playoffs. We're going to start in Boston with Boston Milwaukee. They're playing tonight. Are they? No, they played yesterday. Uh, they're, playing, yeah, they're playing tonight at 7 30. Boston is down 2 1 to the Bucs. And I think it's super interesting that the Bucs have been able to do this, not just with the aggressiveness and power of that Celtics defense, but without Chris Middleton. And he's not going to play game four. I think the, they're hopeful for game five and six, but we don't know. And for them to make it a series, for them to be playing this well, it's one, a uh, testament to just how talented that squad is, but two, a singular testament to how good Giannis is. You watch game three, and yes, he was exhausted. And yes, he was beaten up at the end of it, but man, he did that damn thing. He showed up after a very, very disappointing game too. He was incensed. He watched film the entire time. His final line there. For game three, it's breathtaking. Forty-two points, twelve boards, two blocks, eight assists. Like, what are we doing here? Like, what? It's it's the thing where you know intellectually that a singular offensive greatness can overcome team defense, but watching it happen the way it happened on um, on Saturday was was captivating, and that's one of the reasons why I try to impress some people that this Giannis thing is special. It's something that needs to be taking, not taking for granted, excuse me. He's 27 years old. He's somehow getting better, and he's one of those players who has that extra gear, who gets to the playoffs and, and knows that the stage is bigger, the lights are brighter, and he's got to deliver. On the flip side with the Celtics, I've got a lot of questions as to what their plan is going to be. If Jason Tatum's not going to show up like he didn't in Game 3, you're going to have problems. However, counterfactually, you can't assume he's not going to show up. I think that with the killer instinct on the other side, it's a must-win game for them in Game 4 tonight. It's going to be exciting to see. The other game this evening is going to be Memphis Golden State Warriors. And I'll be very, very, very honest. I'm not looking forward to this game. Not because of anything that's happened in the series. Or not because of the tone and tenor of the series. But because we know for a fact, Ja ain't playing. And whether you want to say, oh, they twisted his knee or they didn't, Jaw's not playing. And while this is a squad that did a lot of incredible, impressive things with John in and out of the lineup during the season, you're playing a Warriors team that's peaking at the right time, that's finding their power at the right time, and just smoked you by 30. You're going back to Oracle, or guess whatever Oracle's called now, tonight, 10 p.m., TNT, and we're going to see what's what. We could very well have these series, that series could be 3-1. Easily. Like, I think it's very realistic that it could be 3-1. I think a bit more touch and go on the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, Boston side. because, But they're in Milwaukee, so if that's 3-1, that one could actually be over as well. And, yeah, I just think that those two series, the ones we got tonight, are going to be super interesting and see how they play out. Let's talk about the games that happened yesterday because I think that is actually a bit more interesting. Philadelphia in the Heat is a series that turned so dramatically on one player. The return of Joel Embiid really not only set the pace to say, oh, we can do this thing, but we can dog walk these guys. There's a reason why those two games without Embiid were so close, nominally close. But part of it was that the Sixers knew they weren't going to win them. Once you got that faith, that belief back, you get things like James Harden shooting 18 shots, getting to the line, generating 31 points. And my only question now is, Gene Butler, yeah, 40 points, great game, 13-20 to from the floor. Can you keep it up? We watched him get gas in the finals against the Lakers in the bubble, which didn't have travel, which didn't have a away games. Excuse me to deal with in road fans. Jimmy Butler is going to be asking to do a lot because they refuse to play Duncan Robinson to generate that offense because they figure they need Max Drews' defense on the Miami side. My question is going to be: When does that calculus change? When you determine we need more points? Another big factor in this has been Doc Rivers' decision to double Tyler Hero. Tyler Hero, I believe that he did not lose this season when he scored 20 points or more. They lost last game by eight points. Tyler Hero was held to 11 points. If he scores his 20, I hope you can do math at home. If you can't, hang up, grab an abacus. We'll come back. Just we'll pause it. We'll, We'll finish it then. The bottom line is, with the inconsistency of James Harden, I don't think after one performance we can say, oh, James Harden's back. Never mind all those worries and thinking he was washed the last three months. I honestly have no idea, but I do know that with Joanne beat, they're much better than without him, even if he's got a mask on and a thumb that has not worked for three months. The last series on the list to visit is one that's kind of been out of hand in my eyes. Um... Chris Paul comes off of the perfection that was the prior series. And he's had two goose eggs these last few games played in Dallas. You've seen not just Luka come alive, but also those bench players, those role players. And if it comes down to who's got home court advantage, it could be a long series. But I see Phoenix pulling it out. The question I have now is going to be not just can they hold court back in Phoenix, but can Devin Booker's continued recuperation offset whatever's going on with Chris Paul? Because while part of me wants to say game four is based on the things we're gonna talk about in a second, game three happened too. Not a very good game out of Chris Paul. So is it a situation where there's an injury? Is a situation where it's not a spotlight thing. And maybe it's that he can't kick these guys in testicles as easily, and that's just frustrating him. But it's going to be it's gonna befall, it's gonna fall more on Devin Booker to kind of continue his growth into being an evolutionary Chris Paul. And DeAndre Ayton to continue stepping up and demanding his money, which, my God, my God, if you're Phoenix faithful and they don't pay him, I feel for you on a level that mm, most people can actually agree with. The last thing I want to talk about before we get out of here is what happened on Sunday with Chris Paul. Sunday was Mother's Day, and Chris Paul um, was notably distracted during the game. He actually isolated the post-game presser early so he could check on his wife and mother because they had been accosted by a fan in the stands. Now, I've seen a video and some are saying this guy, this person who put their hands on his wife and mother was a child. I want to be very unequivocal about this. If you put your hands on my wife or my mother, it's on site. There's no debates. There's no – Chris Paul honestly showed more restraint than I would have shown because he got held back going after a little 14-year-old kid when he got thrown out. If you're 14 and you touch someone's wife and or mother, you have the right to get your ass kicked. It's not, that's not too young to get your ass kicked. And I think that as we are – we've all talked about it. We've talked about what's happening on airplanes, what's happening in these arenas. But now I think it's a bigger, more pressing concern. We're so good at being reactionary in the NBA and in sports in general. Are we saying that, oh, when something actually bad happens, we'll get these policies? This is a workplace safety type issue. If I can't bring my family, if my family can come to watch me go to work in a spectator sense and the arena cannot keep them safe during that, that's not a problem with the fans. It's not a problem with the players. That is a problem with the arenas. And I do hope that prior to any sort of CBA negotiations, we're given some sort of Solution to this. Some sort of ability to reconcile this. To not just let these players come and compete and entertain, but to allow them to be focused on doing so, on doing their job by maintaining some level of decorum and safety for their loved ones. That's not a crazy take. That's not an out there perspective. No one should be touching anyone. And there's got to be a way to protect these people from an emboldened and and psychopathic fan base. that's We've kind of cultivated over the years as we've done this, the fans always write in these 24-hour news cycles where you've got to generate sports news to generate passionate people that you set loose in these arenas. If the kid was yelling something like, hey, Chris Paul stopped kicking people in the nuts, we can support him. But the second you put your hands on someone, you open the door to get your hands put on you. And while the NBA expects the, the players to rise above X, Y, and Z, fuck and that. They're still human. And if Chris Paul had put his tiny fist in that boy's tiny face, I would have applauded him and still disliked him for kicking people in the nuts. I'm a complicated man capable of two thoughts at once. And I will be back later this week. We're going to have um, Susan on. We're going to talk a little Star Wars. We missed May the fourth, but we did talk about it at the house. But we're going to talk about some stuff in you going to midweek drop. and going to have another brand new drop next Monday. That was your show. There is no outro. See you guys next week.